Greetings, one and all. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much uh, for coming. It's a real uh, encouragement uh, to me uh, to see so many people coming out uh, for this kind of an event, and I hope it'll be encouraging to you as well. Um, This uh, session, just to make sure you're in the right room, is uh, entitled Jesus the Liar. Was Jesus who he said he was? Uh, I'm going to uh, speak first on this topic, uh, not as long as I did in the last uh, seminar though, because I want to give uh, a little time for a little spotlight uh, for Fazrana to come up here and tell a little bit about his testimony of how he became a Christian and how some of that might relate to uh, some of the themes that we're looking at in this talk. Uh, So he has to do that a little bit off the cuff. Uh, and then we will uh, jointly uh, take questions uh, together uh, on the theme. Hopefully we'll have time uh, for 10 or 15 minutes of questions at the end as well. Okay, so that's where we're going. Let's uh, uh, start. Uh, C.S. Lewis very famously phrased an argument that's sometimes known as the lunatic liar lord argument or the trilemma. Um, a dilemma is where you have to choose between two things, or a trilemma is where you have to choose one between three things. Uh, I think that's actually terminology that probably comes from Josh McDowell, who uses the argument. Uh, Lewis was not the first to use this kind of argument. You can find it in the works of G.K. Chesterton, who were uh, an influential uh, writer in terms of uh, influencing Lewis's view of things and actually it's an argument that goes back to the very early days of the church and in the context that this quote from mere Christianity comes uh, Lewis is putting up a red flag to those who want to say as many have wanted to say that although they don't believe that Jesus is who Christians think he was he was of course a good moral teacher and he says this Like a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or he'd be the devil of hell. He means this very colourful expression to to mean not just a liar but a blaspheming liar who misled Uh, people in his culture about something that they would have considered to be of of high importance and significance you must take your choice either this was and is the son of god or else a madman or something worse you can shut him up for a fool you can fall at his feet and call him lord and god but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher he's not left that open to us So, as he's actually phrased in his most famous quote here, it's not actually uh, directly, as it were, an argument for the Christian view of Jesus. But you see how this applies, and we've put up the little uh, diagram here so you can see the logic of it. Of course, this argument does assume, at node one here, that Jesus sincerely claimed uh, divinity, or uh, that he apparently sincerely, you might want to put inverted commas there, claimed divinity. Now, that is something that many in our culture would question, and we'll look uh, a little bit at some of the reasons people might question that. But given that apparent uh, sincere claim to divinity, you can say that it was true, and he was who he said he was, or that it was false. And if it's false, you can say that actually that apparent sincerity is, is all a front. 
It's not really sincere. He didn't mean it. He is a lying blasphemer. Or you can say, no, no, that apparent sincerity is genuine. He really was sincere uh, when he made those claims. But he was wrong. So he was sincerely wrong about thinking that he was God, basically. And that equates to him being a bit of a loon. Um, I love the way that Peter Kreft, an American Catholic philosopher, puts it. He says, um, the gap between your self-image and your reality is a good measure of your sanity. (laughs) So if I come into the room and I say, hi everyone, I'm, I'm an okay kind of a chap, you'll probably give that to me. If I come into the room and I say, I'm a pretty decent philosopher and apologist, some of you might give that to me. If I come into the room and say, hey, I'm the smartest philosopher of the 21st century, you're thinking, hey, he's a bit up himself, isn't he? <laughs> if I come into the room and I say, not only am I the smartest philosopher of the 21st century, but I've got the power to forgive your sins and I'm going to sit on God's judgment throne, then you're calling for the men in white coats. <laughs> if you thought I sincerely meant that. So the gap between your self-image and your reality is a good measure of your sanity. And if Jesus sincerely thought that he was God, but wasn't, post egg time, people. post egg time. <laughs> so... The logic of the argument does seem to flow. We'll come back to that later. Um, But, of course, many people would would have problems with with node one, even the idea that that it appeared that Jesus did make these sincere claims. For example, um, this is a culturally extreme example, but a very culturally influential example of this kind of doubt. This is Dan Brown. Uh, He's just got a new novel out, but this is his novel, The Da Vinci Code, a little uh, conversation between some characters there. Uh, One says to the other, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet. A great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Just a good moral teacher. Not the son of God, asked another character. Right, Professor Teabing said. Jesus' establishment as the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which was an ecumenical church council that met in 325 AD. Uh, That's poppycock, uh, as we Brits like to say, but it's culturally influential poppycock, so we do have to deal with this kind of thing. It's just an extreme example, though, of doubt about our first node of our argument. As Mark Mittelberg says, the common claim today is that belief in Jesus as a unique divine person arose long after he walked the earth. Such books as the Da Vinci Code have popularised the notion that it was not until the Council of Nicaea, three centuries after Jesus, that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. Others will take a slightly less extreme view and say it wasn't until, you know, into the, the, somewhere in the beginning of the second century, maybe. But whatever it was, it was long after he was dead and buried. Yet as it turns out, says Mittelberg, the best historical scholarship shows this is simply not the case. And you can look at this through two different routes. Um, I can only obviously summarise some of this. If you want to go deeper into this, let me recommend uh, another of my books to you, which is on the bookstall book called Understanding Jesus, Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment, that goes further into some of this material. You can look at indirect evidence or direct evidence. The indirect evidence will be looking at what other people believed about Jesus and believed 
uh, about his self-image. All the direct evidence would be looking at Jesus's information about Jesus's explicit and implicit claims about himself, looking at his own self-image. For example, if we just go to the second century, very beginning of the second century, a very famous early Christian martyr called Ignatius of Antioch, who's Bishop of Antioch, and as this very colourful picture here describes, somewhat gorily, he was thrown to the lions in Rome for being a Christian, for not renouncing Christ, for not saying the emperor is Lord, but for saying, no, he's not, Christ is Lord. Ignatius was a disciple of the Apostle John. And uh, Eusebius and Theodoret uh, tell us that the Apostle Peter appointed Ignatius as bishop in Antioch. So he refused to deny Christ and then was taken from Antioch to Rome to be thrown to the lions. And on that journey from Antioch to Rome, he wrote a number of letters to different Christian communities along the way to encourage them to keep the faith despite this kind of persecution. And we have these letters. Uh, They are fascinating documents of early Christianity. So, um, Eusebius tells us that Ignatius was martyred in 108 AD. Certain historians would quibble a few years here and there about that, but around there, around 108 AD, which puts him about 217 years before the Council of Nicaea. Okay, which is quite an important point when you're reading Dan Brown. Um, What was he martyred for again? Oh, yes, thinking that Jesus was Lord. Um, For example, in his letter to the Trillians, written on this journey to be thrown to the lions, Ignatius encourages them about Jesus Christ who died for us that you might escape death through faith in his death and entreats them to ignore the docetic denial of Jesus' humanity. There was, there was some, some people were going around saying, well, look, of course Jesus was divine. You know, of course Jesus was divine. But it's silly to think that he was human as well. The early heresy that we find here, the the temptation for the spiritually minded uh, Greek believer, particularly I would think, in this context, is to think that, well, yeah, of course Jesus is divine, but to deny his humanity. So if if all the quibbles about his humanity, him being divine, that's so much taken for granted that this is the first sort of what we're fighting against people getting the wrong view of him by saying, no, he's not human. And we have this this wonderful sort of uh, creedal passage uh, from uh, Ignatius emphasising the humanity of Christ that needs to be held together with the acknowledged divinity of Christ. Turn a deaf ear to any speaker who avoids mention of Jesus Christ, who was of David's line, born of Mary, who was truly born, ate and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, truly crucified and died, who also was truly raised from the dead, the Father having raised him, who in like manner will raise us who believe in him. And remember, this is someone who is going to be thrown to the lions because of his belief in Christ. His confidence that he will be raised with Christ. You can throw me to the lions. They can have their lunch. But God is going to raise me from the dead with my Lord. And I am prepared to stake my life on that. And 
at this stage in his life, this is not someone who so much would be gleaning his information about Jesus from reading, say, other letters or from the Gospels, as we have them. Uh, some of them, have been, they've, been, 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 they'd all been written within the first century, but not everybody had access to all of them. Not necessarily all collected together in a nice little neat New Testament, as we have now and so on. But really, Ignatius would be getting his information about Jesus, upon which he's staking his life in a big way here. He'd be getting it from people who knew Jesus. From Peter, from John. What was called in the early church the living and abiding voice, rather than dead written documents. Much better to get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Dean L. Overman, in his book, A Case for the Divinity of Jesus, says that the, uh, the earliest literary sources in our possession that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death contain devotional creeds, hymns, and liturgical formula that pre-existed those literary sources. They present compelling evidence of a pattern of worship, worship of Jesus of Nazareth as a resurrected divine being dating from a time almost contemporaneous with the events they describe we have solid historical evidence that persons who are alive and eyewitnesses to Jesus's life worshipped him as divine within an astonishingly short time frame of the crucifixion and elsewhere he notes that these devotional practices of the of the primitive church for which we've got substantial evidence clearly demonstrate that Jesus was worshipped as divine right from the beginning of the Christian movement. Now, we haven't got time to look at all of those passages. Uh, You get uh, Dean L. Overman's book uh, to go into some of them. But, for example, the Apostle Paul quotes a pre-existing hymn in his letter to the Philippians. And the letter to the Philippians is dated to about AD 60, i.e. about, say, 27 years after Jesus' death, depending on when you date it. And this hymn that he quotes in AD 60, which therefore pre-existed, and you can quote it as kind of common knowledge, as it were, it includes this phrase about Jesus Christ being in the form of God, in the Greek, en morphe theoi, in the very nature, the very form, essence of God, prior to his incarnation. That's in Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 11, this little hymn. Um, Looking at other literature, just very briefly, just a few references. In Colossians, dated to about 60-62, Paul declares Christ to be the one in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or in Titus, uh, 63-64, AD. Jesus is called our great God and Saviour. The writer of Hebrews, about 65 to 70, addresses Christ as thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Um, so this is a lot, lot before the Council of Nicaea. Okay? This is in the first century. Uh, and some of these references are to passages like the Philippians 1 that predate these early first century sources. Scholars think these go right back, right back to the beginning. Professor Richard Bochum, in his uh, God Crucified, says that the first Christians uh, included Jesus in the unique divine identity as Jewish monotheism understood it. 
You know, it's not some sort of pantheistic, well, of course Jesus was divine because we're all God, aren't we, kind of claim. He meant it in that context in a Jewish way, of course. Um, They included him in the unique divine sovereignty over all things. They included him in the unique divine creation of all things. They identified him by the divine name, which names the unique divine identity. They portray him as accorded the worship which for Jewish monotheists is recognition of the divine identity. You can only worship God. You can't even worship an angel. You can only worship God. And yet Jesus receives these early Christians' worship. Now, Professor Craig Evans makes an interesting point about this indirect evidence of Christian beliefs about Jesus. He says, to assert that Jesus did not regard himself as in some sense God's son, makes the historian wonder why others did. Why others at such an early stage, not, you know, decades and decades or centuries later, but at such an early stage. From the earliest time, Jesus was regarded by Christians as the Son of God. Why not regard him as the great prophet, if that is all that he claimed or accepted? Why not regard him as the great teacher, if that had been all that he had ever pretended to be? Earliest Christianity regarded Jesus as Messiah and as Son of God, I think, because that is how his disciples understood him and how Jesus permitted them to understand him. So that indirect evidence is best explained, most plausibly explained, by saying that that image of Jesus reflected Jesus' self-image. As the agnostic philosopher Antonio Hare writes, we should remember that his first followers were pious Jews to whom the claims being made would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them and where better than from Jesus himself. Good point. So John Rist, a professor of classics and philosophy from the University of Toronto, uh, talking about his own journey to Christian faith, says he came to a stage where he realised that the full range of Christian claims must go back to the very earliest followers of Jesus, and in all probability to Jesus himself. I could no longer delude myself that real scholarship told us that we have no evidence that Jesus himself as well as the earliest generation of his followers, made claims for his divinity. And then he basically says, so I had to grapple with, well, who is this guy? Is he a poached egg? Is he a blasphemer? Who is he? Let's just very briefly look at something about the direct evidence. I think the trial of Jesus, which is multiply uh, reported, uh, an instance where Jesus would have known that his life is on the line here if there was ever a time for a bit of theological subtlety and nuance of the kind of, well, you know, it all depends what you mean by kind. This might have been the occasion. But no, given the opportunity to say, come on, are you the Messiah? The high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Are you the Messiah? Jesus not only says, I am, interesting, I am, but really puts his foot in it says, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. He has deliberately 
put his head in the noose, as it were. Because, not only has he said, I am here, but he has referenced Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. In my vision at night, says Daniel, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, which is typical Jewish imagery for the glory of God, the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. Can only worship God. Worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, as Jesus said, that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And at his trial... Jesus says to his judges, not only am I the son of the blessed one, but I'm going to come with the glory of God sitting on God's judgment throne at the last trump, and I will be judging you. Blasphemy. Unless he's right. So, N.T. Wright says that Jesus believed himself called to do and to be what in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, only Israel's God did and was. Or as J.P. Morland summarises, a high Christology, a divine view of Jesus, goes back to Jesus himself. Which brings us back into the lunatic liar lord argument. If we have that Jesus did claim divinity, well, how does Christopher Hitchens, famous new atheist, deal with this? Well, interesting, he says that Lewis's argument is a stinging repost to those who argue that Jesus may have been a great moral teacher without being divine. And Hitchens writes that Lewis deserves some credit for accepting the logic and morality of what he has just stated. As Hitchens said in a 2009 interview, so many times you come across the Jefferson line, Thomas Jefferson, that Jesus may not have been divine, but that his morality was divine. No, it's a wicked doctrine if it isn't fed by the force of revelation, says Hitchens. Fanny Kiefer asks uh, Richard Dawkins about C.S. Lewis, and interestingly, the lunatic liar lord pops into Dawkins' mind. Dawkins says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis, who was, after all, a professor of English, although no doubt a very good one. Start off with a bit of condescension. <laughs> and half-truths. Uh, but when you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. Things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. Didn't seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Simply and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Okay. So... Dawkins is really saying this trilemma is a false trilemma. There's a fourth option, um, a fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, as he says in The God Delusion, is that Jesus was honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are. You know, sometimes I think there's milk left in the fridge and there isn't. Uh, sometimes I put my keys in the, my jacket and they're in the, in the other one. Um, sometimes uh, first century Jews go around thinking that they're God, but they're not. We're all just, you know, sincerely mistaken. <laughs> Yeah, it's, just, it's so patently 
not a plausible additional option, that it's, it is hardly worth mentioning as an additional option, is it? Maybe that's why people don't mention it. Um, so when you start seeing how the new atheists respond to this kind of argument, that you start seeing how strong an argument it is, actually. As Stephen T. Davis, a philosopher, puts it, it's not easy to see how any sane religious first-century Jew could sincerely but mistakenly hold the belief, I am divine. <laughs> Mickey Gumbel, of Alpha Course fame, says this, the irony of the God delusion is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe that there is a God, but Jesus is not deluded even though he thought he was God. <laughs> a quote from Mike King's book, The God Delusion Revisited, he says, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But, and here's, here's the significant thing, I think, why should Dawkins and Al not be content to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad? Why not pick one of those genuine possibilities? Quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. That's why they're pushed to this ludicrous fourth possibility here. But interestingly, Dawkins himself says there's no evidence Jesus himself was barking mad. He recognises that saying, oh, he, he was a loon, just doesn't fit with the rest of our historical information about Jesus. It just doesn't square. It's not a comfortable fit. Well, what about the liar option? Jesus was a great moral teacher, Lewis wants to say. Jesus uh, had this moral superiority that Dawkins wants to recognise. He says Jesus was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. He praises the Sermon on the Mount and turning the other cheek, anticipating Gandhi and so on. It was not for nothing that I wrote an article called Atheists for Jesus and was later delighted to be presented with a T-shirt bearing the legend. <laughs> And he describes Jesus as a, a, a young preacher who advocated generous forgiveness and praises his genuinely original and radical ethics. So Dawkins does want to say Jesus was a great moral teacher. And that doesn't square easily with saying he was a lying con artist of a blasphemer. So he recognises the difficulty with the two genuine options on the table, and because he doesn't like the Lord option, it pushes him to an option that every room of people that I've discussed it with, they've burst into laughter at the very thought, just as you did. So to the extent that you think we've got good reason that, to think that Jesus claimed divinity... To the extent that you think the information we have about him doesn't square with putting him in the, the lunatic or liar explanatory categories, so to that extent we are pushed towards thinking that his claims were true and that he is who Christians think he was. Now, I don't think that that is a knockdown argument for Christianity, but I do think it is a powerful piece of evidence that needs to be considered alongside the other evidence in the kind of cumulative case for the Christian understanding of Christ. I mentioned uh, my book, Understanding Jesus. Its subtitle is Five 
ways to spiritual enlightenment. I'll discuss five different arguments that I think go back to Jesus and the earliest disciples for the Christian understanding of Christ. And Jesus' self-image, in the context of everything else we know about his character and actions, that is uh, the first of the five ways that I look at. But there are other reasons that Christians have for the Christian understanding of Christ. Um, His miracles, which evince his self-image, and which also give evidence that he was right about it. In particular, the miracle of his resurrection. Uh, His fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies at some very, very long odds, uh, even conservatively calculated. And contemporary religious experience centred around Jesus of various kinds. And taken together, I think these give a very powerful cumulative case uh, for the Christian understanding of Christ. Uh, So there's uh, that book which is out on the bookstall Uh, as well. At this stage, I'm going to pass over uh, first to come up and uh, try and make some connections between some of the things that I've said and uh, some of his uh, journey uh, to being a disciple of Christ. Thanks, first. so much, and it's an honor to be sharing the platform with you in the session. Um, when uh, I got the, the program and discovered that I was going to be speaking uh, this particular topic, I'm a biochemist by training, I thought, what on earth do I have to offer? This is really uh, what appears to be a, a question of history, really, and uh, historical evaluation of the evidence at hand. And I do believe there's an extremely powerful historical case that one can make, again, for Jesus and for his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and uh, as we were talking about it, it seemed like, well, my testimony might be of some use or some service towards, uh, you know, again, addressing this particular issue. That is, how do we know that Jesus is who he claims to be? And uh, I came to faith in Christ as a graduate student uh, studying biochemistry, working on a PhD in biochemistry. I didn't uh, grow up in a Christian home or have any kind of Christian influences, so to speak, in my life whatsoever. Uh, my father was a Muslim. Uh, my mom was a non-practicing Catholic. And when they married, they agreed to disagree when it came to issues dealing with religion, though my father was the, the more religious of my two parents. And so I really had, uh, again, no exposure to Christianity growing up. And any perspective on Christianity was largely shaped by my father, who had a rather negative view of the Christian faith. Now, um, uh, if I had any exposure to any religious system, it would have been indirectly through through my father's practice of his faith, again, as a Muslim. Uh, By the time that I went to college, I pretty much uh, was an agnostic. Now, if someone would ask me if I believed in God, I almost probably would have said yes, looking back on it, but that would have been a rather hollow answer, because for all practical considerations, I had no interest in whether or not God existed and had no need for God. I was a student of science, so I was studying chemistry and biology and very much committed to becoming a biochemist. The professors I had who I admired were, in many instances, staunch atheists who, too, had rather negative views of the Christian faith, and I felt very comfortable uh, in that particular environment. Uh, as a graduate student uh, studying biochemistry, uh, I very quickly came to the the recognition that life's chemical systems are incredibly complex, which, you know, in and of itself is extremely provocative, but I do not think that in a, it alone 
constitutes evidence for God's fingerprints in nature. Because the cell's chemical systems, though they're complex, they also are extremely elegant and extremely sophisticated. And they are so clever in terms of how they work that it's not uncommon is when you work in a biochemistry lab, as you walk up and down the hallways of the lab building, to hear people uh, as they engage in conversation to talk about their work and how amazing, how marvelous, and how astonishing these systems are. Uh, and I began to wonder, well, how do scientists explain where these systems come from? And uh, the, the explanation uh, that was offered was, well, this is through a process known as abiogenesis, or chemical evolution. But then evolutionary processes took simple chemical materials and transformed them into these elegant systems that we study as biochemists. And as I looked in detail at the explanations that were being suggested, I didn't find them to be rather convincing whatsoever. I found them to be, in fact, woefully inadequate. And it was at that point I came to an intellectual conviction that there really had to be a mind that was undergirding everything because of the appearance of design and biochemical systems, but also because, in my mind, chemical evolution simply couldn't explain those systems. And so then I was confronted with the real question, and that is, if there is really a mind behind everything, who or what is that mind? Who or what is that creator, if you will? And how, if at all, do I relate to that creator? And I went on, began a six-month journey as a naive biochemist, a philosophically and theologically naive biochemist, beginning to think through this question on my own. And uh, during that time frame, uh, uh, the woman who I was engaged to be married to, who I ultimately married, uh, had rededicated her life to Christ. She grew up as a Christian and drifted away in her, in her high school years and uh, came back to the faith as we were engaged, and she began to share with me. And I can remember my first reaction was, hey, that, if that's what you want to do, I'm, I'm all for it, but I'm simply not interested. In, in becoming a Christian whatsoever. And as we were getting ready to, to be married, the pastor who married us ultimately uh, challenged, um, challenged me by appealing to my pride as a scientist. He asked me, have you ever read the Bible? And I said, no, the answer is no. I never seriously read the Bible. He says, well, how do you, how do you know it's not true? It's like, well, that's, that's a really good question. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to marry somebody who's a Christian, and this pastor has pointed out that I've never really seriously evaluated Christianity, so at least I owe it to my wife to be, to, to, to at least read the, the Bible to some degree so I have some familiarity with it. And so as I read through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the first thing that I was struck with was like, oh wow, this is where the Christmas story comes from. You know, because again, you know, when you think about my background, things like that are not necessarily self-evident. I mean, I was familiar with the Christmas story, but it's like, oh, the Christmas story. And, and, and as I read through uh, the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, I came across the Sermon on the Mount. And this, to me, is one of the most profound passages of Scripture where you really are confronted with this trilemma. Who is the person of Jesus? Because you have Jesus standing up teaching his disciples how to live an authentically righteous life. And as I looked at what he was teaching, it's like, I have to agree with this. That if somebody is really going to be a person who lives an appropriate life, these are the things that that person should really be able to tick off on, on a list of, of, of ways to behave and, and attitudes to have. And I realized that not, even though I would, would agree this is true and would like to 
to operate this way, there's absolutely no way that I've lived up to this point in my life in, in fulfillment of these requirements, and there's no way looking towards the future I think that I could do anything like that. And so I came, really was confronted with my sin. And what was interesting to me was here's this person, Jesus, who was teaching things that I knew to be true, ways that I wanted to live that I couldn't, who in effect was condemning me. And yet I was very much attracted to the person of Jesus. It's like I really want to please uh, this person that I'm reading about in Scripture. And it, it was at that point, there was just this overwhelming feeling that I had, where I, literally I would say this was a religious experience, where it felt like there was a presence in the room with me, and I never felt that experience any other time reading Scripture. It was only at that moment where I, I came to the conviction that Jesus must be indeed who Christians claim him to be. That the only explanation for Jesus in that context for me at that point in time was that he indeed was uh, was Lord and was going to also be my Savior. And so I would argue that I had a religious experience that went alongside an intellectual recognition that there had to be something more than just simply natural processes that explain everything in the universe. And so it really is in a sense, uh, again, recognizing Jesus as part of a religious experience. And in the last uh, couple of years, I've been really fascinated with this as an argument uh, for at least for, for God's existence or, at least, or for the validity of the Christian faith is religious experience. Because I think that many Christians, at least that I meet, have had some kind of religious experience, oftentimes many separate religious experiences throughout their life as a Christian. And they tend to be very much impacted by these experiences. These are very real experiences to them. They are transformative experiences. Yet so often we tend to discount these experiences as not really being very important when we share our faith or when we begin to challenge non-believers who criticize or critique or, again, dismiss the Christian faith. And, 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 and what's interesting to me as you look out, as you look through uh, the, the, the history of the church, the experiences that we all have in, in, in a religious sense, these are religious experiences that we have, are shared experiences that no matter what your background is, when you live throughout the history of the church, there's a common set of experiences. And the people that have these experiences are credible people who do not feel as if they are mistaken. There's no reason to think that they are mistaken about this experience or these experiences that they have had. And they are credible people. And so uh, Richard Swinburne, the philosopher, says if, if, they, if people are credible people and there's no reason to think they're mistaken, then this really counts as evidence for some kind of, of spiritual experience. And so it, when I have to ans answer the question, who is Jesus, you know, lunatic, liar, or Lord, I answer that question, Lord, and it's not only because of the historical evidence, but it's also because of the experience I had uh, reading the Bible, reading the Sermon on the Mount, coming to the conviction uh, that indeed Jesus must be who Christians claim him to be. So, I'd actually be interested in, in, in Peter's comments as a as a philosopher and someone who has a, a strong background in, in the history, in historical arguments. I'm sorry for the Christian faith. His his thoughts on the religious experience argument. Anyway, I need to come back up to you. I guess. Uh, let you go ahead with your agenda. Is this one working, or do we have to share this one? We'll share this one. <laughs>
Fast way of kicking off Q&A time, isn't it? With the speaker asking the other speaker a question. We'll let you get a word in. <laughs> anyway, absolutely. Um, uh, referring to Richard Swinburne's work, he, he, he's very um, central in this, what he calls the principle of credulity, which is a long, complicated way of saying when you should trust stuff. Uh, that in experience, trust is fundamental. And Swinburne says, look, when you have an experience, you should believe that reality is the way that it seems to you to be, unless you've got convincing evidence that it's not the way that it seems to be. That the burden of proof, as it were, is on, is on the scepticism to justify itself, rather than on the straightforward interpretation to justify itself. And it says if you didn't follow that kind of principle, you'd be mired in a very deep scepticism uh, about a great uh, deal uh, that we don't really want to be mired in scepticism about. Um, science, for example, would become deeply problematical if we didn't take things to be the way our experience tells it to be unless we've got reason to think that we're wrong. Uh, of course our experiences can be wrong. They're, they're, we're fallible, we're open to correction, but we have to start out by trusting the evidence and saying, well, th- things seem to be this way, so they probably are, unless I've got a reason to doubt it. And the only way in which you can have a reason to doubt it course is by trusting some other appearance of the way that things are that that overwhelms your initial experience that you should trust until and unless someone comes along with an even stronger reason for overturning that one and so on but trust uh, is fundamental and he'd say this applies to your own experience and if you don't have the experience it applies to people's testimony about their experience that generally speaking you should trust what people say they have experienced Rather than um, being uh, deeply sceptical about it, you should trust them until and unless you've got some reason to to doubt them. Um, So the principle of credulity and the principle of testimony um, is something that Richard Swinburne's done a lot on on justifying, and I think it's basically good common sense. Okay, we should have some microphones, I think, because we want to make sure that we have recording for... Uh, the DVD and all of this kind of thing going on. So I'll let the gentleman with microphones port microphones to you. And you might want to address one just generally or one to us uh, individually. Um, my name is Chris Holloway. I'd just like to, to, to thank first for his testimony. But um, it, it led into a question that I was asking myself with your, uh, was it six or um, five, five, five? You, you, you kind of leapt from the resurrection to contemporary Christianity. And, and to my mind, one of the most powerful evidences is the conviction of the disciples following the experience of Pentecost. Mm. And that kind of touches on Buzz's comment on it was personal experience mm. that, that actually clinched it. Do you, do you address the Pentecost experience in, in your book, and, or, or do you see it as? Evidence of the divinity of Christ, following his, his promises in, in John to send the Holy Spirit. Right. And there it was. Yeah, I, th- I think I would I would bunch it into um, when I say contemporary religious experience, that that doesn't necessarily mean just modern day. I mean religious experience uh, are contemporary with people over, all through history. So that the, the the religious experience of the disciples the religious experience of the early church fathers, of people all through, including people today, of various kinds. Um, there, are, there are more these more sort of inner 
experiences. There are sometimes experiences that, 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 that have correlates in the world out there. Um, so you mentioned an experience that seems to be a fulfilment of a prediction. So that would sort of um, overlap somewhat with an argument from prophecy uh, as well. Um, these arguments are not necessarily kind of airtight compartments. The, the, the experience of the earliest disciples in, in, in really apparently sincerely believing they've met the risen Christ after, after his crucifixion. Uh, in one sense you could say that's a religious experience... Uh, but in another sense, that is part of the evidence for the historicity of, of the resurrection um, because their experiences wasn't simply a sort of inner visionary experience, but they, they are telling us, no, we met him raised from the dead, we ate meals with him, we touched him, we spoke with him, we had conversations with him. We were in groups of people when this happened. It wasn't just, you know, I was off in the corner having eaten my magic mushroom, having a trip, you know, <laughs> uh, and so on. So, yeah, I, I think... Uh, religious experience can feature in quite a number of, of the different categories of arguments that I've divided stuff up into. Uh, two quick questions. Uh, first one, you referred to the hymns in Colossians and Philippians, uh, 60, 65, and so How do we know this when the earliest manuscripts and not that old? And the second one, or the earliest surviving manuscripts mm-hmm. and not that old? And the second one is um, a question that I know many young Christians of the youth that I work with to struggle with, and it's about the divinity of Christ himself. And the question is, is Christ God? If he's God, why does he refer to God as my father? And is he God number two? Um, How do you answer the question about Christ as God himself? And how does that relate to prayers? So who do we pray to? Do we pray to Christ or to God? That's at least three questions. Do you want to take the, the historical one, and I'll take the philosophical theology? <laughs> you want to take the one the manuscripts? Sure, I can, can try that. that. Yeah, I mean, and I'll, I'll do the Trinity. <laughs> you may have to come in and correct me here. But, um, and so you're talking about the, the, the hymns that are found in, in, in Philippians. And so, I mean, the, um, my understanding is that, that, that Paul is essentially quoting hymns that would have been uh, um, commonly sung by Christians, and so as he's quoting it, those hymns clearly must predate uh, when when Philippians was written. I'm not exactly sure how scholars will will date those manuscripts. There's all, obviously uh, portions of manuscripts that we have that you can date with carbon fourteen dating, for example, and get those those dates. And there's probably literary uh, techniques that can also be used to date the manuscripts. So those dates seem to be, in my mind, fairly secure. And so it's evident that Paul is quoting this, and it would have been evident to people reading that that this was something that was, was being quoted. And so clearly they, they go well before the, the manuscripts were written. Yeah. Uh, and the general rule with manuscript questions about the New Testament in general as well is that we've got many more manuscripts for the New Testament than we do for practically anything else in ancient history. Um, you, you can look at some of the graphs. I've got some graphs in my book, Understanding Jesus, that compare the New Testament um, manuscript uh, availability evidence uh, to other ancient works of history and biography and so on. And you can just, just look at the graphs and go, oh, wow, okay. Um, basically, if you wanted to be sceptical that we can reconstruct the original text of the New Testament on the basis of, well, we haven't got enough manuscripts or they're not close enough to the original uh, autograph, if they're called or whatever, on those grounds, you'd have to chuck out the whole ancient history department at the university uh, as well. Um, So you don't want to go there, really. Um, 
a question about the Trinity, uh, and then I think we should uh, come to the gentleman in the front that has had his hand up uh, several, several times. Um, uh, of course, this is getting into, into the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, uh, which is neither that there is one person who is God, nor that there are three separate gods, as in sort of polytheism, but that there is one divine being who is essentially composed of three divine persons. There's one divine personal being, but that one divine personal being has three divine persons that constitute the Godhead, or the Trinity. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I think, in one sense, the earliest Christians were pushed to that by their, their understanding of Jesus and the fact that Jesus relates to God the Father and talks about sending the Holy Spirit. Um, and they just had to come up with a model of God, theologically speaking, that incorporated all of that data. Um, and I think the philosopher Peter Van Invegen, it was, who says that our models of the Trinity are at least as good a model of incorporating uh, the, the data into a model as, say, our models of the, um, the, the wave-particle duality of light is a good model at incorporating all of our experimental evidence about that reality. There are different theological and philosophical ways of, of, of going into the details of explaining it, but practically speaking, the earliest Christians just had to grapple with the fact that there was Jesus and he was putting himself in God's shoes, but also praying to God and saying, and I'm going to send God to be with you. Like, so they, they had to come up with that. Later on, some theologians, this is um, uh, uh, Victor of here, I think, uh, came up with what I think is a very uh, interesting argument, just from sort of purely thinking about God as the greatest possible being, and saying, well, if God is the greatest possible being, um, it, it chimes with the idea that we get in the Bible, where it says God is love. Um, but how can God be love just as an independent, solo person, as it were, without creation. We don't want God to depend upon creating people to love in order to be love. Doesn't this imply that the God, God has to incorporate some sort of um, diversity of personality? And indeed, if you think about different kinds of love, you could say, well, here's one kind of love. Um, I love you. We're loving another. And here's a different kind of valuable love. Two people who love each other together. We love, I love you, you love me. We love together someone else. We have love and loving with. To do both of those kinds of valuable kinds of loving, you need at least three people. Three personalities. You, if you added a fourth, you don't get an, a new kind of love, qualitatively speaking. You just get another loving with but loving with more people. You know, it, but it's quantitative, but it's not qualitative. Qualitatively speaking, if God is love, you have God loving and loving with, and the only way to get that is to have a Trinitarian concept of God. Thank you. Uh, my question's around uh, certitude and mystery. Uh, now, if uh, I, I accept historical evidence and becoming gaining confidence in what we believe is important, but some of my colleagues would say, I don't want the confidence which is, presents itself in, in certainties which do not allow room for mystery and for more revelation. So how do you, how do you match those two? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I could ask yeah, yeah, sure. 
It's very kind of you, by the way, to let me crash your, your sessions. Right. Thank you. You're very, you're very gracious. Um, you, you know, I think this is... Oh, did you not hear the, uh, the question is, uh, in terms of, and this is really a, a question that anybody who's engaged in apologetics has to address, is the idea that we're trying to make arguments that demonstrate the rational basis for the Christian faith, and at what point does that then eliminate mystery? You know, and, and, and there are people who don't want to eliminate that mystery. You know, and, and to me, I, I don't think apologetics eliminates mystery. I think it just gives that mystery even much more meaning. Yeah, because, uh, you know, the, it, to me it's very important in this day and age that we live in to have confidence that what we've invested our lives in has a rational basis to it. Uh, and in fact, I think you can make a really good argument that this is, the Christian faith represents a superior worldview. Uh, the superior worldview when it comes to any other option that you would have as a human being. And, I, and the reason I feel like that is because whether one looks at the scientific case that one can make, the philosophical case, the historical case, you have these very rigorous independent arguments, as Peter mentioned, that form a very powerful weight of evidence that indicates there is just a really good reason to think that there is a creator like the Bible describes, that brought everything into existence, that there's a purpose to this, that humanity, that, that purpose culminates in large measure in humanity, and that that humanity needs to be redeemed, and that the plan of redemption laid out in Scripture uh, has, again, justification, historical and philosophical justification. So that's very, very important, but to me the mystery comes in as you try to live out that Christian faith. You know, there's so many questions I have, you know, why things are the way that they are, particularly when it comes to issues dealing with pain and suffering. There's tremendous mystery in that, but I'm able to experience the, the limited amount of pain and suffering I've had to endure as a Christian, uh, and I can make sense of the pain and suffering I see other people having to endure, and even can encourage and counsel them because I'm confident, even in the midst of not really understanding things, I'm confident of who God is and, and the plan that he has for human beings and that he is ultimately going to, uh, to, to, to come again, that Jesus will come again and, and, and bring culmination to this age with the hope of sharing the, the glory of Christ for all eternity in the resurrection. So. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important when you're trying to communicate to people about the rationality of Christian belief that we don't set the bar too high as it were, unrealistically high. We, we cannot profess to comprehend God. Um, we can understand something of God. The things that we don't understand don't negate the things that we do understand, but we do not comprehend him. Goodness me, we don't even un- uh, comprehend just the material creation. But that doesn't mean that science is rational. just means that there are mysteries and there is more to find out. Uh, and we get on doing our best finding that out. Um, well, how much more so with belief in the God who created the creation that we study in science? Um, it's just going to apply even more so, isn't it? Uh, the thing is, though, to try and communicate that we can know enough to make a confident choice for following Christ, uh, not giving people the idea that you have to know and understand everything down to the nth degree before you make uh, a choice about that kind of thing.
my question is, um, in the uh, now contemporary, um, if we are in our endeavor to be apologies without necessarily apologizing, um, will our emphasis on moral teachings of Jesus aid or hinder our message? Interesting. Well, emphasis on the moral teachings of Jesus aid or hinder mm. apologetics. In your case, it's obviously helped. So. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I think in this day and age, um, recognizing that there are certain demands that Jesus puts onto us, on us in terms of how we live out our faith and therefore putting emphasis on the moral teachings is actually very valuable. Because I found that my interaction with atheists is the one thing that they expect that Christians are going to do is to, to love others and to serve others and to have a positive impact in their community. And when they see Christians doing that, that gives a credibility to the message. I know the danger of emphasizing the moral teachings can lead people to think that all Christianity is about is being a good person. But in this day and age, if you're not doing things that Clearly, even atheists know that Christians are supposed to do and do that with excellence and with compassion. The, the, the message that really is central to the Christian faith will not be heard. Uh, you know, we, uh, my wife and I, uh, are friends with a, a lady in our. I'm from America, from the Los Angeles area, who has a catering business, and every year at Thanksgiving, she and her partner go out into the streets and serve probably 2,000 meals just for anybody who wants them. And it's a really big undertaking. We're privileged to be just a small part of that, that team that does that. And what was interesting to me was one year we were serving and somebody walked up and said, I would really like to help. Is that, if I, can I help what you're doing? And we said, sure. She goes, it's, it's not going to be a problem if I'm an atheist, is it? It's like, no, that's not a problem at all. But she was attracted to what, the, what we were doing because we were doing a good work in the name of Christ. That opens up the opportunity to share the real message of the faith, which is the life, death, and resurrection. So, yeah. Well, could you give a round of applause? <laughs>